Hi all. Uh, before I started the podcast, I just wanted to say something. Um, it's been well over a week since uh, this podcast was recorded, and I knew pretty much as soon as I started editing this that had had we recorded it today, I would have wanted to say something about what what's going on in the world. Um, and I think part of the reason I've delayed editing it so long is because I wasn't sure what to say. Um, but I feel like I'm ready now, so here goes. Black Lives Matter. The police brutality and racism in the US police department is disgusting. The death of George Floyd and countless others named and unnamed purely because of the colour of their skin is disgusting. It's so disgusting that I'm not going to sit here and condemn anyone for rioting and looting because if you kick something too many times it's going to explode. And guess what? You don't get to choose what direction it explodes in. Us white people would love it if people used the proper channels to raise their issues because the proper channels don't work. We've rigged them. However... This is not just a police problem, it's way bigger than that. And it's not just in the US either, it's here in the UK too. The whole of society is structurally racist, and that's on us as white people to change, because we, as white people, made it that way, and we have maintained that to be the case, and it will continue to be the case until we change it. As Kimberly Jones notes in her eloquent and passionate speech in the video by David Jones Media, which I'll um, link in the podcast notes, they can't win. Black people can't win. As she states, they have been playing Monopoly with no opportunity to own anything, and any time black people have made money and own their own stores and communities, they've had them taken away from them again. So when we sit here condemning black people for destroying, inverted commas, their communities, again, as Kimberly says, these aren't their communities. They don't own anything. We haven't allowed them to. The game is rigged in our favour. It isn't fair, and it is on us now to share the wealth that we have made, largely on the back of the work of black people we continually oppress with our racist systems and institutions. It's on us now to read up on black history, to read up on being a good ally, to read up on being anti-racist. The more we educate ourselves, the more we can spot racism as it appears. Because it's much more than just name-calling, it's everywhere. In our statues, one of which has thankfully been pulled down now in Bristol, in our institutions, in the fact white is very much thought of as a default wherever you go. We need to learn, listen and act to call it out and actively work to change it because it's bullshit. I've always tried to call it out when possible, but I haven't done enough. I haven't educated myself enough. I haven't actively done enough. And most of us clearly haven't because if we had, this wouldn't be happening. It's on us to make sure this is a movement and not a moment and that we don't stop until the systemic racism ingrained in our societies from top to bottom has gone. In the podcast notes, I've put a few books that are great starting points and have been recommended a lot online. And I've also put a link which has a lot of ways we can help. But beyond that, I'd urge you to watch and read all the great things being posted on social media at the moment and to listen to all the black voices that are speaking up. I'm going to stop preaching here. So enjoy the episode. But but let's fucking change this. your head out of the clouds Get your feet back on the ground Get stuck into pop culture With Stick Around Hello there and welcome to Stick Around The podcast that's been around the block more times than the Cool Runnings bobsleigh team training by pushing a Mini Cooper around Peterborough. Brought to you by at Ava Cox, 
uh, because this country's had enough of sexperts. Anybody who doesn't get that reference, uh, Michael Gove, who I've actually lost track of what his job what his job is now. He seems to have been bounced around so much. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. (laughs) Like a explicit porn stars tweet, allegedly by accident. Uh, Who knows? Um, Michael, you're probably the person who would know what what's his job now. Uh, I was hoping you weren't going to put me on the spot there. Um, I think isn't it one of the it's one of the general ones, isn't it? I don't know if he has that specific a brief. I can't remember. I mean, he is a, he is a, an odd man, let's, isn't he? Let's check. Yeah, let's I mean, find out. He, he reminds me of um, that guy from Men in Black who's like bugs in a human suit. He just doesn't look quite right. Like he understand doesn't understand how to be human. <laughs> Anyway, oh, well, I figured out who you mean. Now. Yeah, yeah, he's. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, he's minister for the cabinet office, so a, gen- a very general one. What does that even uh, mean? Okay. Although the first thing that came up when I searched him was that he is chancellor of the douchey of Lancaster. I mean, <laughs> he's definitely he's definitely the douchey chancellor. <laughs> I mean, what what a modern country we are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Anyway, you're here for Stick Around, episode 152, I think. Um, didn't make a big deal about 150, so let's make a big deal no, about um, 152. Should we make a big deal of this one? Yeah, why not? Let's make a big deal, yeah. Fuck it. <laughs> right. Put in some, uh, maybe, Clive, you could edit in um, Time to Celebrate into this bit, and um, we'll come back to it. You know, 152, yeah. big milestone. Um, anyway, can I, can I just point out on the subject of Gove? I think I got the most likes I've ever had for a tweet about Michael Gove. What Ooh, was that? It, it was—it's what always happens on Twitter. Uh, you get the most likes for tweets you don't even put any thought into. I find, and you, usually if they replies to something, so it was—I don't know if you remember—it was a picture of the um, of the cabinet last year, I think. And Gove was looking particularly ridiculous, like even more so than usual. <laughs> um, and yeah. I just replied saying, look at the state of Gove, and chalked up 40 likes for that. So, Wow. <laughs> I remember that, I can't remember, three years ago, I tweeted, again, I think it was a reply of something. It was on some sort of, it was a classic bubble effect. Somebody had whinged about something to do with teaching. I replied saying, I'm a teacher. This is the actual state of things. And then that got retweeted load because everyone was like, oh, yeah, this teacher knows everything about teaching. <laughs> An authority reply, on it. Retweet him. Yeah, he's an authority on it. Retweet him. Uh, so I got retweeted a lot, and I can't remember what it was now. And I'll never know because my Twitter feed deletes itself after three months. So there you go. Is it? Really? Yeah, I set it to do that. I didn't even oh, know that was a feature. Well, it's not a feature of Twitter. You have to do like get something else and just log in there, and then it does it for you. Makes more sense. Yeah. Does, does it? De- so does it delete things for everybody? To, so, or could we look up your old tweets? Um, I'm sure some somewhere on a database, all the horrendous bad tweets I did. Can say that all those uh, <laughs> dodgy. Takes. Probably there, but no, you nobody else will be. Even if like you've replied or whatever, it'll be gone. Mm, bad, interesting. Bad, bad tweets archive.com. Probably there, yeah, somewhere. 
<laughs> if you really want to find them. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my most like... Don't bother, they're pretty boring. Pretty sure my most <clears throat> liked tweet ever was where I just replied to someone with the word nonce. And it got... <laughs> Uh, I was amused by um, I don't even know how to say his name that's how out of touch I am um, you know the uh, it's Takashi 6 is 9 or whatever um, you know the rapper who was banged up yeah yeah he um, well he was he's twi- he was complaining last week wasn't he about uh, Justin Bieber and Ari- Ariana Grande scheming the charts somehow to get to number 1 thereby blocking him mm. from getting to number 1 and then uh, Matty Haley just replied to it with, uh, you are literally a nonce. <laughs> <laughs> Did enjoy that. I mean, you don't hear Gary Glitter moaning, do you? <laughs> yeah, he's given up. <laughs> um, anyway, um, formal introduction time. Uh, this bloke's Clive Fisher. Ahoy! And this fella's Michael Johnson. That was the last time I checked. Uh, it certainly sounds like Michael Johnson. It certainly sounds like him. Um, we have had a case of people getting in, though. Yeah. This is why we need to start making this video and make it more difficult. This is true. Um, anyway, let's get this weekly podcast up and running with some uh, cutting analysis. Let's go to Sheffield, uh, where Clive Fisher would like to tell you something. You've come to the wrong place for cutting analysis. Um, so I was going to do, um, as everyone probably knows by now, I'm doing a top five albums of every year from 1960 onwards and don't, didn't generally want to like duplicate and talk about stuff on here, but I figured if there's an album that really jumped out, um, I might talk about it. And I particularly loved an album this week uh, from 1966, which is the one I'm working on at the minute and will, I don't know, it'll be up probably a similar time to this episode. So who knows? It might be up. It might not be up. So I'm going to do a bit of duplication here because with this challenge, the thing is, a lot of the albums I've listened to already, so it's I'm sort of I'm basically taking the top five albums as rated by people on ratingmusic.com and putting them in a in my how I would write put them into top five, and I'm often picking other ones from further down the list to throw into the mix as well. Um, and obviously, there's a bit of a bias there towards things you've already heard sometimes, um, because I think an album you listen to for like a week or two is never going to be able to compete with something that you've spent the last ten years of your life with, um, and uh, which is the reason that Dylan <laughs> is coming pretty high up. Because well, I love him anyway, but also other things don't stand much of a chance. Um, but this album is the first time I've heard it, and it it's just blown me away. This um, last week, um, and I've listened, I've probably listened to it like between ten and fifteen times at this point, and it's fabulous. And it's um, "Wild as the Wind" by Nina Simone. It's an album I've already mentioned. It came out in nineteen sixty six. It's actually made out of um, apparently leftover recording sessions from nineteen sixty four and sixty five. Um, I listened to Pastel Blues as a, which is an album that she did in '65 um, as part of my 1965 list. Also, really enjoyed that, but not as much as this one. As usual, I tend to listen to the albums a couple of times first before I read anything about them. Then I'll read and then I'll listen again. Um, and before, I was shocked to read that this was made up of like um, essentially B sides. <laughs> because <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. Uh, but then actually, I, when I sort of thought about it, I thought actually maybe it's not that surprising because I think what makes it great is it doesn't have, like Pastel Blues is a bit more immediate. It, the tracks have clearly been picked to be 
to make like a, a top selling album, like sort of a bit more rock and rolly, a bit more mainstream tracks. Um, the stuff on Wild is the Wind is a lot darker and slower and maybe not as sellable, uh, in inverted commas. So I could imagine maybe that's why it's nothing to do with the quality of the tracks for definite. It's more to do with maybe the way they perceived how the album would sell. Um, but yeah, in my opinion so far of the, all the Nina Simone albums I've heard, and this is probably about the fourth, this is my absolute favourite. Um, things do start in a similar sort of, uh, it's like an upbeat rock and roll uh, track, I Love Your Loving Ways, which could fit seamlessly onto the album I've already mentioned, uh, Pastel Blues from 65. Um, it's just, you know, it's catchy, will perform fun, but it's um, in, in my opinion, it's after this track that the album really starts to hit its stride. Notably with the only Nina Simone um, original on the album. And she um, she wrote a fair few originals through her career, but her albums were generally um, mainly uh, taken up by cover songs. And I believe um, that was an influence, partly influenced by her husband. I don't know how long, uh, how long she was with him for throughout her career, but I know that he particularly wasn't too keen on her writing too much about political stuff uh, because he didn't think it would sell very well, um, which in my opinion is a massive shame because... This particular track, Four Women, is incredibly political. It's a um, it essentially tells the story of four African American women um, affected by years of sort of racism, oppression, and slavery. Um, it's quite poignant, and particularly in these times, for reasons I probably don't need to go into. Um, Nina tells their stories from their perspectives um, over like a gentle piano bass and kind of electric guitar backing, which we she weaves this kind of sad, evocative tales before it all. As, as with a lot of this album, she starts quite calm and then it kind of blows into a crescendo either at the end of the song or somewhere else, somewhere towards the end of the song. In this case, it is right at the end of the song um, and she sort of screams out the, the name of the fourth person, um, I Am Peaches, to finish the song. Um, it's just a really well-observed and powerful song and very much um, sets the tone for the rest of the album after this. And in a way, I quite liked that first number being a bit more rock and rolly because it felt like the transition, <laughs> it was like transitioning to this new album, but having something left over from the past one a little bit. Sounds a bit weird, but um, I quite like that about it. Um, the performances on the rest of the album are completely captivating. It's totally what makes this album brilliant. It's one of those albums, and the, the last time I remember this happening is with Bon Iver's first album, when I listened to it, and I just couldn't, like literally every time I wasn't listening to it, it felt like a, a sort of, I was wasting my time. Um, I remember actually somebody said that on the front. Um, somebody asked. Uh, I was probably affected by the fact that that was a quote on the cover of that album, uh, which I think was from some review. Every <coughs> every minute not spent listening to Boniver's album has seemed wasted or something. It said on the front, and I totally like agreed with that at the time and understood what. And, and this has been similar. It's like you finish it and you're just like, I don't really want to listen to anything else. I just want to listen to that again. Um, and I've not, like I say, had that feeling for a really long time, which is cool. So we've got, I'll just pick out another few of the highlight tracks. We've got What More Can I Say? It's like a mix of lulling bass and piano, which a lot of it is. It has this very dark backing uh, tr track to most of the stuff. It's not particularly upbeat, not loads going on, but it just really sets a brilliant mood for um, what is, you know, Nina Simone's amazing voice and her often underappreciated piano skill, um, which is just amazing at times. And it's not something that I'd heard much about. Uh, before I started listening to it, you always you hear loads about her voice because obviously her voice is fantastic and it's completely unique, and you immediately know what it's Nina Simone. Um, but her piano playing is also something else. 
Um, and she, she does just like a real fragility to her vocals on this, but also she goes between that to uh, like win the crescendo is having this super powerful voice. And it's just a, a really, really great mix on what more can I say? She's kind of, she does this weird thing on the piano that she does a lot on this album, which is like this, just creating this whirlwind of like almost a wall of sound before Phil Spector invented it. <laughs> Bing bong bong, posted it Clive. Incorrect. The wall of sound uh, was invented, I don't know, was already being talked about in 1964 when Phil Spector was uh, mucking about with it. So, yeah. Bing bong bong. Uh, she's just playing that many notes that it's like, how, what is going on? I've no idea how she's doing this. Um, and it's, it just sounds amazing. Great. Like I say, kind of like a whirlwind of noise. Um, and that's a particular... Uh, what more can I say is a particular good example of, but the best example of it is probably the title track, um, Wild as the Wind, which was um, notably covered by David Bowie as a tribute to Simone, even though it's not um, Simone's original song, um, on his album Station to Station. It features, in my opinion, the, the most breathtaking piano performance on the on the record, which is just absolutely magical. It creates like a thousand notes as she kind of rushes up and down the keyboard, like I say, creating this kind of wall of sound noise. Um and then it just builds and builds and builds until it's become just, just completely magic. Um, and to be honest, well, the first time, like I say, when I heard it the first time, I just couldn't really believe what I was hearing. I was like, is there about seven people playing the piano here? What's going on? Um, and it, yeah, it's just superb. And I think everyone should check it out. And that mixed with her just really, really superbly soulful, kind of deep, um, like every word matters kind of vocals um, is just... Yeah, it's superb. It, everyone needs to go out uh, after this podcast, or right now, and come back to the podcast. Put on Wild as the Wind with some headphones, um, and I pretty much guarantee it's going to blow you away. And it was... I've, I've, put, I've got some other tracks here, but I'm going to... Um, if you want to read... Um, <laughs> I'll waffle about this plenty in the article so you can read some more about it. But I just think it's an album with great songs, for definite. Um, but this really, for me, shows... Because a lot of these songs weren't written by Nina Simone, and I'm sure a lot of them weren't as. Um, I can't say I've listened to any of the originals beforehand, but I guarantee they won't be as good as this, these versions. And I think it just shows sometimes that how important the performance can be as well. Um, Nina performs them; she completely puts her own stamp on them. She performs them as if they're a, she wrote them, um, and she takes them and just it's. I don't know. I can't describe it. I was just completely blown away by it. Um, and the fact that they're not written by her, I th- written by her, is something that I think is often touted as. Not, I'm not meaning specifically to this album, but in general, artists. So when it's like, oh well, it's just an album of covers, and I think even the word cover actually has a sort of negative connotations. And certainly, I'd be one who doesn't generally like covers. Um, but I think it was a bit different back in the um, back in the '60s, particularly with uh, and a lot of these are traditionals, for example, um, and a lot of I mean folk in particular is built up essentially of. Um, covering other people's songs and developing on them and a lot of Dylan's um freewheeling in 63 was um a lot of people don't realize how much of that um is actually taken from traditionals like Scarborough Fair for example um is if you read the lyrics of that song the lyrics are very similar to one of the Dylan tracks and that's just something that was going on in folk that's what they did um well quite often they just cover the songs as they were but often they would add um, new bits to them, and that was fine. Which um, it's kind this, of uh, it's kind of similar to the origins of hip hop in a way, really. Yeah, I can see sample what you mean, culture. Yeah. You know, mm. yeah, it is. It is just you don't have the other person performing it; you do it yourself. But yeah, you're yeah. right. It's yeah. taking a bit of, and that's all creativity is. It's the it, the idea of being completely original is 
essentially it's not yeah. well it's not a thing yeah I, the, yeah, the original stuff comes from going i want to mix that this person's an influence this person's an influence and together yeah. they might make something that's like pretty unique but you didn't pluck it out of thin air <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, everything has got um has been copied creativity is essentially picking what things to copy and uh, putting them you know your own spin on them or whatever yeah. um even if you don't think about it that way that's what's happening in your head um and yeah it's that this is just a, a fine example of how a performance can make such a difference to a song um i think even though like i say i haven't heard the originals <laughs> i'm not even gonna bother there's no point um because you listen to these and it's just mind-blowingly good and i think everyone should check out um wild is the wind which um i noticed afterwards actually i was like after i read this i was thinking oh i'll, I'll read up maybe this is you know how famous is this RateYourMusic.com's community Pure, uh, clearly rates it but i don't know how well it you know is it on a lot of lists or whatever and uh, it doesn't seem to be massively um it's quite a lot of her other albums seem to be higher up but pitchfork notably did give um said it was the fifth best album of the 1960s which is pretty remarkable um and yeah i think that was the only one that had it particularly high up and there wasn't many other reviews around from like official sites that i could find uh, which is a massive shame this thing is it really is that good i would say it you know i bet when i finish this challenge of doing the 1960s it's going to come in my top 10 i'd be absolutely shocked if it isn't um, and that's a pretty big statement so yeah everyone to check it out it is fabulous and um just quickly i wanted to mention as well i, I mentioned um and i'll be quick because i know we need to speed up but um i mentioned last time i was listening to a couple of bread Bregman podcast and I just wanted to highlight them again um just talk a little bit more about them so people go out there and check them out so it's um it's Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces podcast which is great anyway but it's two particular episodes so I should have written down the numbers but it's a recent one with Rutger Bregman um you'll find it it's um where he talks about his book Humankind that's the there are two with Rutger Bregman I think the recent one's the most interesting for me although they're both great what book the humankind is essentially looking into the falsity that we have uh, grown up that humans by human nature were bad uh, and that if you just leave us to our own devices we go out killing each other and just looking after ourselves and it's kind of um the book aims to <laughs> to prove that wrong essentially and um this conversation with Scrooby's Pip was fa- it was just really fascinating for me because i've always had that view that when i I've always had the view that people are generally good and I don't, I've never agreed with the fact that I think, I think it's society that uh, forces us into bad decisions and has, has kind of perpetuated this idea that humans are by nature bad. And I think that we're not at all. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of research in this book and that he quotes in, I've not read the book yet, but he quotes in the interview. That's just fascinating. There's uh, he loads of like super famous psychological studies that often get uh, proven as the fact that, this is why we're bad. We're left to our own devices. I think there's a famous study, a prison study, where they told people, you're going to be the prisoners, you're going to be the guards. Oh, and apparently the, it's the Stan- say, Stanford prison Stanford, experiment. Yeah. yeah, but apparently it's bollocks. Um, <laughs> like, actually, they did it and nothing happened. They just hung out together and drank tea. Um, but then they forced them to make... Um, <laughs> they then said, you have to act like this, and then said, then did the experiment like that. 
Um, but actually, if they just if they were left completely to their own devices, they didn't. Uh, that didn't happen at all. It's complete bullshit. Um, and just things like this isn't a real experiment, but, but something that's always brought up is Lord of the Flies. Um, as a you know, people think that's an accurate betrayal of what would happen if you put a load of kids on an island. Um, and then you know, there's he sort of compares that to when actually about I think it's eight uh, between eight and ten kids actually got stranded on an island. I read about um, this recently. Yeah, it's, it's didn't someone, happen. <laughs> it's going to be made into a film. Is it? Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great to hear because um, it'll be good for it to get some uh, press because actually what happened was they just survived and got on and built their own. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it's fascinating. And there's loads of things that they uh, sort of jump around in this interview and it really got me into, uh, I need to read a read the book, but also just read more of about this kind of stuff because I think we get fed a lot of crap. Um and it's just interesting to it well it changes your whole perspective on life if you go into it thinking that people are on you know the surface good and it's something that's affected them that's maybe made them make bad decisions or whatever but um, another thing that he mentions particular is the um the idea that scarcity leads to bad decisions um because of the fact you no longer have uh, if you're in poverty you don't have the bandwidth to be thinking about things as much as someone who doesn't who isn't in poverty and isn't having to make those immediate um more to be dramatic life death decisions i guess if every sort of you're living day to day basically if you're <clears throat> out of poverty you're not really living day to day because you don't have you haven't got so many day-to-day worries and how much that affects how, how well you can make good decisions and that um you know being poor is not a as as maggie thatcher famously said personality defect um it's a sort of a it's it's the being poor itself that leads to poor decisions, not the other way around. Um, and another thing that was mentioned was the perpetuation of this idea at the moment is just simply because of the lack of contact that, um, and I suppose this is particularly in lockdown, but I think previously as well, um, because of the rise of the internet, a lot of our interaction is either a message or, you know, emails, things where we don't see each other or even um, maybe over Skype or whatever, it's not the same. Um, if you sit down with someone at a table, you are, you know, more than likely going to have a <laughs> sensible discussion and you might come from a completely different viewpoints. Um, but you're going to be able to have a sensible discussion that doesn't involve you just screaming at each other. Um, and also, which ties in with the fact that such things as, you know, in war, loads, not many people get killed by bayonets because people are not... Uh, comfortable with stabbing someone that they can see in the eyes they're more comfortable with shooting like some artillery off to somewhere where they can't see him uh, which makes it impersonal but actually as a species we're not very comfortable with killing each other when that has to be trained into each other trained into us um, and just things like this which i thought were fascinating and i think everyone should listen to it it's really great um but yeah like i say screw his pick goes podcast is is great anyway i don't know why i've used his twitter handle there it's <laughs> He's Scroobius Pip, not Scroobius Pip Yo, which is his Twitter handle. Um, yeah, so check out that episode in particular. I think a lot of people would enjoy it, and I'm certainly going to go out and uh, buy the book. And I also liked at the end of, not this one, I think it was the previous podcast, that he said, he uh, basically said, you know, if you can buy the book, if not, I'd rather you just read it. So however you get hold of it, read it. Uh, so he's all down with the high seas, essentially, if you can't afford it. Cool. Um, just to go back to your original um point clive on nina simone have you seen the film what happened miss simone it's on netflix no i haven't but i want to i was just thinking earlier i want to a read a book or watch like a documentary so is that one is it what's it about specifically i 
I, well, I don't really know that much. I haven't seen it personally, but oh, okay. I, it's very it's highly rated. I know that it was it's one of the well, I think it was Oscar nominated for best documentary. Um, I was ho- I was hoping to get your opinion on it to see if it would be worth watching, but fair enough. <laughs> um, I know I'll probably watch that for next time then because I'm yeah absolutely fascinated by this this album and that sounds great. Yeah, so I'll probably watch that and hopefully talk about it next episode for you. That'd be good. Cool. Um, I've downloaded that um, Scroobius Pip podcast. Um, I- I've listened to his stuff before. Um, I mean, his podcasts, I mean, but um, and I've heard of this guy. I think he got very Twitter famous um, about a year ago. Um, should be should be interesting. Yeah, he did for the. I think I mentioned it last time. He said that um, he a went on to Fox News and like basically said that they were being funded by a load of dodgy corporations and got screamed at by someone from Fox News. Um, they never aired it, but the person in Holland that he was doing the interview with filmed it <laughs> uh, oh, while he was in, in the now, studio, yeah. and then that went that went viral. Um, and also, he did the famous speech at Davos where he was on about people flying in on private jets to go watch David Attenborough talk about the environment and just how tax is the, how the biggest issue that we never talk about is how uh, everyone's just evading tax. He w- he wasn't invited back to Davos this year. Yeah, not surprising. No. <laughs> he was uh, he was interviewed in the New Statesman last week. I'm only familiar with him from interviews, really. Um, I do like him, and he seems very interesting. Uh, but I am very sceptical, I have to say, unfortunately, of his claim that the international left is better prepared to um, take power from the, the coming recession than it was 12 years ago. Uh, not a view I share, particularly as exemplified by his own view, although he does admit in this interview that he is out of step with public opinion. Um, you know, his own utopian ideals of a borderless world, which I think are admirable and I support in principle, but I don't believe there's any route to power for parties of the left in the West right now in the current climate uh, espousing that view. And call me jaded, maybe this is what starts to happen once you hit your 30s, but I'm more interested in achieving power and, if needs be, you know, um, reallocating wealth, uh, the spread of wealth by stealth in the way that the new Labour government did, um, that I am in, in, you know, embodying some sort of utopian ideals which are never going to get anywhere near to the seat of power. So that's my uh, that's my simple take. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, his, in the interviews he uh, says specifically that he's very, that a lot of his ideas are quite big, but he's, he's saying... You know, he's not immediately wanting those plans to happen and they're not going to immediately happen. And it doesn't mm-hmm. change, doesn't over generally happen over two or three years. It happens over 10 or whatever, or 10 or 15. But over those 10 or 15, a lot does can change. Yeah. Um, he's um, the first step episode of his is about his book, which I'm reading for the minute Utopia for Realists, which is basically about universal basic income, um, which is seems like a massively radical idea. But for example, in Switzerland, it was, um, it went. It, it lost the vote 60 to 40, which is not a high percentage. Incorrect. It was 77-23 uh, with heights of 65-35 in Geneva, as I explained later on. But I thought I'd plot that here in case you stop listening and start spreading fake news. Bing, bong, boom. I've, I've, re- I've read s- several things on universal basic income that it's going to be a necessity, regardless of what people mm. think of it. Uh, with That's the, ra- the rise saying, of yeah. automotion, um, there's gonna, not going to be enough jobs. And even just this week, uh, Microsoft fired a whole load of journalists and replaced them with an AI system. I mean, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. You know, what's, what's the context of that? 
Oh, um, what journalists? What journalists do they have anyway? What? Uh, well, it's for, for the MSN homepage and um, some other website. Oh, okay, so not real journalism. But not yeah. really, no. But still, it's it's slightly scary that you know a job like that that re- surely does require some human editorial control. Yeah. Um, writing has gone on, but um, yeah. Well, some some economists and technologists, however, believe that the rise of AI will. Uh, lead to the creation of new jobs, you know, in the same way that new technologies have in the past. But we need to we need to see on that, don't we? Because again, obviously, it sounds highly cynical, but it's difficult to believe that any government is going to respond quickly. Uh, any of the sorts of government that we've elected um, at the moment are going to respond quickly to introduce universal basic income. They're not going to do that unless you know unless they absolutely have to, and probably then even not till a later stage. So. Uh, it is slightly worrying, of course. Mm. Okay, well, um, hard act to follow that. Uh, Michael, I'm not going to do it. Oh, set me up to fail. <laughs> 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 I've just got to say about the uh, Clive's uh, digging through the 1960s. Oh, articles. sorry, yeah. Of course, uh, I, I want to. Uh, I mean, I want to add my insight on all of those, as I have for the first few. But what has happened basically after he struck 1962 is I've actually found myself lost for words in terms of wanting to try and describe some of those albums. So fair play to you, Clive, for actually actually doing that. Um, it's very hard. <laughs> as, as the well, the two as two things start to stack up, of course, in that's um, outstanding jazz albums. You know, the best jazz ever made, and Bob Dylan albums. Uh, that's that's when you what you start to hit once you get to 62 and onwards. And then, of course, now that you're getting into 66, you're getting into pop and the development of the contemporary album as well. So, ever more crowded field, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. It's like you say, it can be difficult, especially when I'm doing 10 albums and I feel like I've used I've used this superlative at least four times already. Yeah. Um, and trying to write something interesting. But, yeah, hopefully I'm still achieving that to some extent, but it is becoming more and more difficult. <laughs> yeah. Right, I'm going to talk about an album from 2001, uh, an album that on the s- surface of things might uh, might not seem too complex, but to me is a very interesting album, um, and that is I Get Wet by Andrew W.K., um, the background to which is the Andrew W.K., a musician who spent the 90s basically working in various bands and projects. This is what I like about the story, really discovering what his sound was. Uh, had a background in sort of uh, in piano music quite heavily, um, and uh, you know, some more experimental stuff, but also floated around between genres and styles while working a series of odd jobs. My favourite of which is bubblegum machine salesman. Um, wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but this is this album is. Um, it's, I mean, it's it's a a proper hard rock album. Uh, there's 12 tracks, it's bookended by two short ones, but they're all uh, you know, pure blasts of hard rock, packed with really chunky grooves, uh, metal influence. Uh, my iTunes defined it as punk, which I think is, it's a long way from the origins of punk, but I think it's relevant as well. But I like the fact that it has that style, but it also has keyboards and pianos splattered throughout it. Uh, that's a, quite a unique sound to it. And I like the fact that in the in the um, in relation to the keyboards uh, and generally um, sparks were cited as an influence. Uh, the Los Angeles oddball duo, of course, who uh, were too weird for America in the nineteen seventies and had to emigrate to England, where they fit in a lot better in a post David Bowie landscape. 
in terms of the lyrics on I Get Wet, they've been held up as... De- they're all basically about partying, and they've been held up um, as sort of developing sort of party philosophy of Andrew WK's, so, such as their focus on the subject of uh, partying and pleasure. Uh, going back to the sound, it's there's extensive use of overdubbing, and there was a, a desire expressed to almost make it sound as if one instrument was being played, and the sound is well, it's it's difficult to describe. Um, it's quite it feels almost streamlined, even though there's a lot packed in because it's been condensed together so heavily, um, and it's absolutely cacophonous. You know, this is music that demands to be played loud. It's basically an album of big dumb fun, um, which doesn't um, is not to um, play down its significance as I'll get onto in a moment. But in that vein, it's an album that sort of put me in the mind of Permission to Land by the Darkness, an album like that. What and I an think, album! Absolutely. <laughs> I think when you um, when you're in the mood for that sort of thing, um, you know, music that uh, goes hard but is effectively a form of party music. For me, music can still work like that, even if it has heavily political content. So I'll be adding this album to the list of albums that uh, that work for in terms of that vibe and that so when I'm in that sort of moment, along with that Darkness album. But it also includes albums by the likes of Public Enemy, Rage Against the Machine, M.I.A. So even though the lyrical content here might be more, seem seemingly more empty than those sort of acts, uh, I think it all plays into the same sort of pool of music and albums. Uh, I mean, the reason I, I knew about this album for a lot of years, but the reason I came across it recently was I talked about 100 Gex a few podcasts ago uh, and I mentioned Sleigh Bells uh, as a as what I perceived to be an influence on that album at the time with especially their debut album Treats and then separately a few weeks ago I read that it was the 10th anniversary of Treats which blows my mind because I can't believe it's a decade since I bought that uh, went out and got it on release day and there was a discussion going on there about uh, albums that sound relentless and go you know have a have a true vibe of go harder go home from start to finish and this album was mentioned again and that was what finally inspired me to go and listen to it uh, there's a lot of group vocals on the album and that's although completely led by Andrew WK that's very much in uh in keeping with the spirit of the music that I just mentioned as well uh, he expressed expressed a wish for the them, for them to sound almost orchestral and uh, I think that's certainly achieved. The artwork of the album is quite famous and definitely one of those artworks that is fully representative of what's on, on the album. Uh, it shows um, Andrew WK with his nose bloodied, blood running down his face. Uh, he apparently had tried to achieve the effect for the uh, for the artwork by hitting himself in the face with a brick. Um, and when that didn't work to a good enough extent he then uh, supplemented it with some animal blood uh, so it's it's. Uh, I don't know if it was a direct influence on the cover of After Hours the new Weekend album but it's certainly whether intentionally or not the Weekend cover recalls uh, the cover of this album and it really summarises the intensity of the album uh, Party Hard is definitely the most famous track from the album that a lot of people will have heard absolutely rocket powered but some of the other tracks I would recommend are I Love New York City, uh, She Is Beautiful, and the title track, I Get Wet. Um, it's one of those albums where it has that very singular and focused sound. All tracks are technically the same, but when you're listening to a 12-track, 35-minute album, that's very much part of the appeal in this case. Because um, 
even though I've compared it to a lot of music there, stylistically I've not really heard very much exactly like this. And that's that's what really sells an album to me. Um, what's interesting about this album is the critical history of it. Uh, our friends at Pitchfork, who we've already mentioned on this podcast and who get mentioned a lot because they are one of the most significant music review sites out there. Um, this album, certainly in terms of score, and probably more generally, constitutes the single biggest vault fast in the history of the site. When it was originally released, it was scored uh, a score that really exposes all the lunacy of the Pitchfork scoring system. 0.6 out of 10, what? which, as well as being uh, extremely harsh, of course... Uh, as I say, shows how absurd the absurd the scoring system is. What what made it a 0.6, not a 0.5 or a one, for example? Uh, but we, you know, I think Pitchfork are aware of that. And we don't need to get into that. But when reissued in 2012, it was awarded an 8.6, so a full turnaround of eight in the eight points eight <laughs> eight points on the scoring system um, in the space of 11 years, and. Um, well, on the on the subject of that, I would recommend something I uh, I read recently, which is Rob Harvey's article at theringer.com, Pitch Perfect, which is an article on the history of the Pitchfork Ten, um, published just recently after the first award of the t- of a ten in ten years to fetch the bolt cutters by Fiona Apple, of course, uh, and that's a fascinating article that charts Pitchfork's evolution from you know a snotty nosed Minneapolis blog in the mid nineties to today the internet's most significant um, music outlet uh, and this 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 scoring of this album really fits directly into that mythology of the site I think it's always interesting to assess different contexts or the way perceptions can shift from when an album came out to a certain point in the future where it might have become more fitting to the musical uh, moment of the day and I think what's interesting about this album is it came out in November 2001. So it's, you know, it, it's a New York album, basically. And it was catapulted into that post-9-11 New York. Um, Andrew WKs himself uh, expressed that there was opposition to, you know, some of the party content of the lyrics, uh, the keyboards, bizarrely. Uh, and he felt there was a distaste for the club beats and rhythms of the album that he'd gone for. Um, I think, obviously, after 9-11, that was... Um, obviously, it was a very serious socio-political climate. But we see, in some of the horrifying things coming out of America this week, you know, we see a lot of these things, but they are different moments. Um, obviously, the 9-11 attacks were were epic by definition and but at the same time they were completely nihilistic and basically achieved nothing they were they were framed as an attack on america and on freedom of course sometimes for exploitative ends but to me they were more of an attack on the future and they didn't work of course uh, kind of reminiscent of in lost when uh, the scientist daniel faraday attempts to change the future by detonating a hydrogen bomb also doesn't work um that's what that's what it puts me in mind of, but in a real life narrative, uh, and I think that that dif- the difference with what the, with the sort of thing you see coming out of America now, besides the fact that this is an inter- you know it's an internal issue rather than an attack from outside, obviously. Uh, but some of the activists and protesters you see now, you know, they're um, 
at a basic level, they're demonstrating from a they're demonstrating from a humanist perspective, and music is the sort of sanctuary they'll retreat into. So I think there's still there's still a moment and a time for music of this sort in moments like this. Uh, after nine eleven, the climate was much more serious. I think, and that was. That was when you had the false dawns of bands that came out and were said to encompass the New York sound at that time, like the Strokes and Interpol. Although in the long run, the band that really um, came to embody it, having moved to New York from Ohio, was the National in the long run, while, while the Strokes and Interpol fell off a cliff. Um, and I think that's part of the context of how this album works differently now and over the years since uh, to when it was first released. But... Um, yeah, it's a great album, very reminiscent vocally of an album that came out around the same time uh, by the pop-punk band The Bouncing Souls. Uh, they released their classic that year, How I Spent My Summer Vacation, another great album, worth checking out. But I don't think there's many albums I recommend on this podcast that I think all three of us would enjoy, but this is one. So uh, that's another reason I thought I'd talk about it. Mm. Interesting. Um, did I ever tell you my Andrew WK story involving a um, friend of the podcast, Matthew Winship? <laughs> Possibly, yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, we were in the now-defunct Virgin uh, Megastore in Middlesbrough. <laughs> um, they used to have these kind of sound booths where you could listen to an album with headphones. Yeah. Um, Matty was listening to... Um, Andrew WK. Uh, in fact, it was the album where he has the bloody face. Um, some less than savoury individual tapped him on the shoulder and said, you do, you look like him. Uh, but he said, uh, no, I don't. And he said, you will when I've smashed your fucking face in. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I bet that guy's just been hovering around that bay all day, hasn't he? Just <laughs> yeah, just waiting, waiting for somebody to listen to Andrew WK. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I can't what happened next? He just left. That was it. Um, I don't know if he Who thought left? it was a hilarious joke. Oh, the guy left. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I can't honestly say I've listened to much Andrew WK. Um, Clive, I, I keep wanting to say WKD, by the way, but um, <laughs> Clive, any any thoughts? Um, same, I don't know, I couldn't name you a song that I think I've heard, so he's, he's, he's a bit of a gap. Oh, well, you should go and listen out. to Party Hard, because you may well have heard it. Um, yeah, I, pro- I probably have heard some. I, th- I was of the impression that everyone who grew up at school uh, around the in, during the era of new metal hoodies would know the song Party Hard. Is, it, uh, it's is a, that it's a, so- it's a song from that era, do you know what I mean? Is that the one where it's, let's get a party started, let's yes. get it? Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah, 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 I've heard that, right. Cool. Yeah, I need to check this out, though. Sounds very interesting. I'd be interested to hear what you think of it from a sound perspective, Clive. Um, Because the way it's arranged is very interesting, I think. Hmm, Cool, that sounds... Maybe want to listen to it even more. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Um, By the way, I've 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 given out fake news earlier. The the Swiss work was 77.23, with peaks of 35.65 in uh, Geneva. Um, So it wasn't as close as I was making out. But um, still... The fact they had a vote. Yeah. Okay. Says something. Um, yeah. Good that you've corrected yourself, there. though. Good that you corrected it. Well, you know, I'm not. I, just, I do give out fake news, but then I correct it later on, which is less worse. <laughs> we like to keep people on their toes, don't we? Mm. <laughs> okay. So we've got, a, we've got a band of people who only listen to half the podcast going around now also spreading what they don't know is fake news because they think <laughs> that Clive is a reliable teller of the news. <laughs> 
but actually they fucked it. Always check your sources. And never trust Clive. Yeah, uh, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> we have to start tagging Clive's blogs with uh, get, get the truth about whatever it is. <laughs> make them, you have to actually click on it to make it visible. Yeah. <laughs> this post is inciting violence. <laughs> um, well, ne- never say that this podcast is not current. Um, Clive, remind me of what, what year Nina Simone's album was from. 66, the year of my mum's birth, actually. Interesting. Which I'm sure she won't mind me saying. Uh, Michael, remind me of what year the that album was from. 2001. Well, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, we're getting oh, yeah, clo- I forgot. I forgot when you thought the 9-11 was in the 20th century, didn't you? As evidenced by that quiz the other week. All right, you didn't have to bring that up. <laughs> Bang. He's been I'd storing re- that one up. <laughs> uh, dear listeners, I didn't think that. I just neglected to listen to that part of the question. Um, anyway. What, the, you, you mean you neglected to listen to the question? Yes. <laughs> this 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 would hold more water if it wasn't his quiz. <laughs> oh, so you were giving out the wrong answer? Wow, okay. You set it wrong. Yeah. That's a whole new level. Right. Anyway. Um, You've been uh, scraped off my reliable news list. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I forgot what I was going to say now. Um, so was, and, 2001. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah, current, anyway, not- anyway. Well, the point I was going to make uh, was that uh, we're not talking about anything current, or I'm not anyway. I don't think anybody else will be adding to this. Um, I'm going to just quickly talk about two films that I've been re-watching. Um, I haven't really watched anything new this week, and... This, this has been quite a fast pace for us to be putting out podcasts. Um, so I decided, I don't know about you guys, but I've been in the mood for revisiting things that I've liked in the past. Have you, have you been doing that at all, or has it all been new stuff for you? The past doesn't exist anymore B- to me. Bit of both. So it swings back and forth. Yeah, t- time's all out of whack, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I decided to revisit two films that um, I, well, coincidentally, they're on TV. And uh, I thought were both classics at the time, just to see if they stood that test. Um, one of them was the Bong Joon-ho film Snowpiercer from 2013. Um, this one came up on my radar mainly thanks to the fact Netflix have just released a TV adaptation. I was going to say, t- I saw that pop up and I was like, oh yeah. And then I just clicked on it out of interest and then I saw episodes and I was like, oh, hang on. Because I didn't know it had been adapted. Yeah, I mean... I haven't seen it, um, although personally I don't really see the point in it. Uh, I think it's had moderately good reviews. What um, is the... I mean, is there always... Is, it, is Snowpiercer actually Korean or is it Western? Uh, well, it's actually... Well, it's based on a graphic... A, fren- a French graphic novel uh, called... Oh, I'm going to botch this. Uh, La Trans... La Transperquienge? I don't know. Uh, by Jacques Lobb, uh, Benedict Legrand, which... Benjamin Legrand, which sounds like a brilliant <laughs> name, uh, and uh, Jean-Marc Rochette. Um, but yes, obviously it's a Korean-made film by Bong Joon. Bong so it's, it's in Korean, yeah. No, uh, no, no, no. It's English language. It's oh, that's just... what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah, just oh, it's not relevant in this case then. But there just seems to be this obsession that Korean films have to be westernized. I don't know. I don't know why. Yeah, I obviously mean, not relevant here, but. It, this is a Korean film in the sense that it's made by a Korean filmmaker and it was made by a Korean production company, albeit yeah. with Western actors. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I thought I'd revisit it. Um, it's one of those films which has as much of a story 
about how it was made as the film itself. Um, I've mentioned it in a previous previous podcast, the famous Harvey Weinstein cut. Uh, so he, he he owned the rights for the international distribution, and he was demanding a twenty minute cut. Um, one scene in particular that he wanted to lose was a scene where some violent thugs gut a fish and then smear the blood on themselves. And Bong Joon Ho said this was a tribute to his fisherman father. Um, so Harvey Weinstein said, "Oh, you can keep it." Which, as uh, Bong director Bong later revealed, that was a total lie. He just wanted to keep it in his film. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's just a legend, <laughs> isn't he? I mean, the film itself is a very kind of broad strokes capitalism satire, uh, where you have a I think revolution. All of his films are, aren't they? Pretty much. Well, I mean, from what I've seen anyway, um, you know, you've got Chris Evans' character um, egged on by his um, mentor, John Hurt, um, leading a revolution from the back of the train to the front of the train, where Ed Harris, in a role that feels like it's getting typecast for, kind of a genius overlord, a la uh, The Truman Show, uh, is residing. Um it stands the test of time, uh, and it, it kind of strengthened my initial uh, instinct that the TV show adaptation was totally unnecessary. Um, it may well be very good, but I'm not sure I see any point in it existing, and I'm really not sure how much of a long-term um, you know, plot you could really have on just a train. Um I mean, the, the whole film Snowpiercer is absurd. You know, um, all of all of the carriages seem to have their own ecosystem. Um, they even seem to slightly vary in terms of size of carriage. Um, now, none of this detracts from the film at all, um, but I'm not sure how long you could sustain that for. Um, I mean, the film absolutely tanked when it was released because it was released in such, you know a small fashion by Weinstein, mainly out of um, his own pettiness. So even before we discovered he was a manic uh, sex offender, it sounds like he was a bit of a cunt as well. Um, I think and I'm going to... Has everyone seen Snowpiercer here, by the way? No, that's why I was asking which. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, I won't I make this next point then, because I, I was going to go into <laughs> it uh, warts and all, but... Um, I, don't, I don't mind. No, I wouldn't want to spoil it for you. It's too good for that, Michael. Um, but anyway, it stood the test of time. The second one, and this one might provoke a bit more discussion, um, because I've mentioned this to you earlier in the week, Michael, um, is the 2016 film uh, Arrival, uh, directed by Denis Villeneuve, oh, starring Amy Adams got and Jeremy, this off, haven't you? Jeremy Renner. Um, <laughs> a film that me and Michael disagreed on. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Uh I thought at the time it was a brilliant film. Michael did not. Um, well, I should I should clarify. Uh, it's it, the film is immense to look at. Brilliant premise. Uh, kept me interested throughout. Just hated the ending. That's all. And it, I can't get past it. Unfortunately. Um, I rewatched it because I, I, one of my main. To be honest with you, the fact that you disagreed um, made it even more important for me to rewatch. I wanted to discover um, if you had any merit behind your criticism. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I feel thoroughly patronised. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say I can't. No, I, I'm kidding. You, it, his his viewpoint is as valid as mine, but um, <laughs> I, 
I still don't agree. Um, I You're s- just fact, bloody it- wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, to be honest with you, this film has grown more in stature the more I've watched it. Um, I think the word meticulous is overused, um, but I think it really applies here. The entire plot is circular, um, such as um, the, the, the construct of time in this film. Uh, it feels like the, the entire film, based upon a short story but greatly expanded upon, um, has been written with such dedication to detail. Um, that although I understood what you were saying about the ending, um, I just didn't think it's that right. And I mean, the film itself has one of the most overplayed but ultimately brilliant uh, pieces of classical music, uh, modern classical music in it, On the Nature of Daylight by Max Richter, um, which features in so many films and TV shows, it almost um, becomes boring, but it, it fits best in this. I think I think what most impressed me about Arrival, though, is the fact that it was so original in the sense of an alien invasion movie. I can't think of anything like it, uh, where there was no threat from the creatures themselves. And there was never really that much of an inference that they really were posing a threat. Mainly, the chaos comes from the human reaction and the uh, scattershot approach to it. And it manages to combine the the personal and the political. And I I think it's a modern masterpiece, I've got to say. And I'd really like you to rewatch it, Michael. I do need to rewatch it, yeah. Um, I mean, my objections came from... I mean... In my head, they were partly structural because I felt like I'd seen what the film did as a twist better, done better elsewhere, but I think it was more to do with... I found it a little bit mawkish myself, and I also saw what was coming a little bit, and that, I think, frustrated me a bit. And I think it's unfair because, obviously, I brought expectations to that that didn't need to be there, so it's partly on me. But I don't I don't, I don't, don't dwell on films that I, I don't... You know, thoroughly enjoy, and it's rare for me, I think, to dislike a film that's very widely acclaimed like this. So, you know, I don't, I don't celebrate it. I'd like to um, really appreciate the film, and there was a lot I did about it. But I don't know for some reason this one just the ending sticks in my throat for whatever reason. See, I, I always thought that the ending, and I, I don't disagree with you that uh, you can see the end. Uh, certainly, after a certain point, you can see the ending coming without spoiling it. Yeah. Uh, but I, that never bothered me because it, it, that felt like it was important. It felt like you were supposed to. That was part of your way of understanding. Mm, uh, I can see that, that argument. That's quite interesting, actually, yeah. Um, um, probably I, another I, reason why I should rewatch it at some point. As as for you know what you said on mawkishness, well, that, that, that's personal preference. I can't, you know, you, you will either buy it or you won't. Uh, I, I didn't personally feel that way, but I can, I can accept the criticism. Clive, did you have an opinion on Arrival? I loved it when I saw it. I have to be... Honestly, I can't remember the ending and I can't remember all that much about it. Uh, so I need to watch it again, like you're saying. Um, the one thing I did remember, like you say, is that song. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I am a big Max Richter fan. and oh, yes, brilliant. That is, that, that is the one song that um, <laughs> everyone just fucking uses all the time. I'm just like, for God's sake, it's... just go and literally go anywhere else in his catalogue. There's hundreds of other songs that could match the same Yeah, mood. I mean, it, it is an absolutely <laughs> sensationally good song, but... It is, but there are others that are just as good. Um, yeah, So it'd absolutely. be nice if somebody delved into there a little bit that sometime. Reba- that reminds me of uh, <laughs> Your Hand in Mine by Explosions in the Sky. Other Explosions in the Sky songs are available. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it is their best song, but still, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, it yeah, cheapens it, doesn't it? You'll get something that is, you know, an outstanding piece of music, and then you'll... Well, for, for example, um, On the Nature of Daylight was used in Shutter Island before it was used in Arrival. Um, I, I think it works far, far better in this film, I've got to say, but... Um, it's, I think this is the best use of it, yeah, I agree with you. It's been used in so many other things. In fact, I'm going to bring up a list now because I'm actually cute. But I remember, lo- <laughs> I remember looking at it looking it up and thinking, bloody hell. Like We love hell. lists, but there's one thing we love more, live lists. Live lists, let's have a look. Uh, so, uh, bear with me a minute. So, it was used in... Two thousand and six. So, first of all, it was used on the soundtrack to Waltz with Bashir. It was used in the Will Ferrell film Stranger Than Fiction, uh, a film called Disconnect, a film called The Face of an Angel by M- Michael Winterbottom, The Innocents, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, Togo, and oh, the trip to Greece. Apparently, um, <laughs> I mean, like. <laughs> Come on, guys! It's a brilliant piece <laughs> like, of music. I can see why you want to use it, but um, quite a wide array of stuff there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can see why people want to use it, but come on, it's been done. You were beaten to it. Sorry. How can we make this trip to Greece seem epic? I've got just the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> if we put Max Richter's on the nature of daylight behind it, it'll seem amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. Just. Check out the rest of his catalogue. Some yeah. other stuff. Brilliant, brilliant uh, musician. Um, but anyway, my wider point was that I've been going through this mood of... I've almost got bored of new stuff, which sounds ridiculous, but um, I think I think sometimes there is a massive benefit in re-watching something, be it a TV show or a film, or re-reading something, um, where you can see things in a different light, where because you're not taking in the plot, you can appreciate the... You know the artistic qualities, the workmanship of the of the the film itself, which might sound like it's taking you know the personality out of it, but I I don't feel that way. Well, it's interesting, really, isn't it? Because if I get an album, I think mm, that didn't really click there, but I might listen to it another ten times, and then they're the most satisfying when eventually you get into them. But if you don't like a film, you probably tend to not rewatch it, don't you? Even though well, exactly, there's no yeah. reason why you shouldn't. Um, I think it's partly because we don't have time to watch new ones, let alone rewatch old ones that didn't strike us. But these these things are necessary. Yeah, um, I think what I'd be most interested in, I think I'm going to rewatch fil- uh, the other film that I can think of that we disagreed on uh, to see if I change my mind. Uh, only, only God, God forgives. forgives. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm going to rewatch that if it's possible to do so for free, anyway, um, and see if see if my opinion changes because I am a a fan of rending reference other work, um, in fact, everything else I've seen. So I'll be interested. Thank you to see for if- pronouncing it. Saved me having to do it. Yeah, well, I, I I tried not to for a minute, but then I thought I'd better try. Um, yeah, so I just made a sound. That'll do. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, I was a fan of his other work. So maybe I changed my mind. Maybe I saw that in the wrong frame of mind. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, this is the, I've only seen his um, the well the three films which. In my mind, visually, all look very similar. Uh, Drive, Only God Forgives, and The Neon Demon. Yeah. Um, and I like them all. And obviously, Drive is the big hit, but for me, Only God Forgives took everything that was great about uh, Drive and pushed it into my experimental territory, and I really loved that about it. And The Neon Demon is a sweet add-on as a bonus at the end. Um, I mean, I don't want to completely undersell it. It's a good film, but uh, uh, Only God Forgives is the apex of it for me. 
Mm. Well, I'll have to watch it because I've seen the other two, but not this one. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's it's, it's Ryan Gosling's. Uh, it's the very. It's the. It's also the very peak of Ryan Gosling's non-acting phase, isn't it? Yeah. So went through, <laughs> he had that phase, then he had his comedy phase. I don't think I've seen him in much lately, but no, I, I love him as an actor. Well, I I actually sincerely hope that I change my mind on it. Uh, I'm going into it wanting to like it, so I will report back. I'm hoping that when you rewatch Arrival, if you ever do, I'm hoping you have a whiplash moment because you didn't love Whiplash to start with, and I know you're changing my mind. Oh yeah, on that. that's that's a good point. That's one that changed for me. Yeah, that's a great film. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, I, I'm going to be rewatching some other films uh, next week, but I'm going to try and watch something new as well. I think what while we're doing this week by week, I might try and have one week of reflection on films I'd seen already, and one week on something new. Um, but we'll see. Organized, mm-hmm. I like it. Clive, did you have anything else you wanted to mention? Um, no, I think I've waffled long enough. So, okay. I've got a couple of things I'll talk about. Go for it, Michael. Thank you. Just a couple of newer things I've been listening to. I've been listening to Sawayama by Rina Sawayama, the debut album of Rina Sawayama. Um, Japanese-British uh, pop artist making her debut. Signed to Dirty Hit, home of the 1975. Uh, founded A label founded by Jamie O'Bond, the 1975's manager, and among others, and I only found this out this week, the late Hugo Ehiog. Uh, quite Say a, that um, again, sorry. He was He's a co-founder of the label Dirty Hit. Oh, what a man. I mean... Who knew? Who knew? A, I didn't aside, know as, this week. Aside from being one of the best offenders of the uh, mid to late noughties, he's also... <laughs> Wow. You don't want to get at all, of course, are you? In that? No, not at all. <laughs> Borough Ledge. Yeah, so this is a very, a very diverse pop album that I was interested to hear, really fueled by the frenetic, hyperactive production style of British musician Clarence Clarity. Great stage name. And it ties a little bit into what I was saying about critical perception shifting, because it, of, of, among other genres, pop, R&B, rock... It incorporates some new metal sound, which is something we haven't really seen in the pop world up to now, I think, but seems like it was due to happen. Uh, And I would say new metal certainly didn't have much of a critical run during its original incarnation. Uh, So it's interesting to see it being incorporated into pop and acclaimed now. Uh, So I need to listen to more more to that and develop more thoughts on it, but it's a great album. Very much enjoying it from the couple of listens I've had. So yeah, very interesting one. Uh, How do you spell um, spell that? Sorry, Michael. Trying to download it, but I can't find it. <laughs> okay, so it's S A W A. S A W yeah. Y A M A. Okay, cool. Got it. Excellent. Yeah, sounds that, great. I think what's quite unique about it is she's making her debut at the age of twenty nine, which is quite rare in pop as well. Um, but I mean, vis- uh, it's it's although diverse, it's fairly traditional in terms of song structures and style. But certainly visually, she seems like quite a creative and experimental artist so uh, we shall see how she develops good start as far as I can see uh, and the only other thing I want to mention is of course a classic uh, always deserving of mention on the podcast Sleaford Mods um, I was disappointed the other day to see them slagging off the 1975 on Twitter um, typically Sleaford Mods are very good at picking targets and um, you know I, I know that obviously so there's there's not always going to be a complete crossover between I acts between acts I love and I do love both, 
Um, but the comments were packed with similar abuse backing backing it up, and I just think, is it that hard to fathom that someone might be a huge fan of both, as I am? Um, I know that's very much, you know, the, the, the MO of Sleaford Mods to, uh, to criticise things that aren't as incendiary as their own material, but there you go. Um, but I've been listening to All That Glue, the retrospective um, of Sleaford Mods. It's interesting because it's not just a greatest hits collection. It is partly that, but it also brings together rarities, some fresh material, and B-sides, and I think that's what gives it an interesting slant. Uh, among the tracks that I didn't previously have in my collection, which I'm delighted to add to it by getting this album, uh, the best ones for me are Fat Tax and Blog Maggot. Definitely both were uh, worth checking out. The latter in particular because it includes a lyric about, I can't remember the exact lyric, The Fresh Prince of Bellends, which <laughs> is another class Sleaford Mods lyric, of course. Um, and I noticed that at the moment the top, t well, not just the top 20, beyond that as well, of the UK album charts is packed with greatest hits albums. Um, and Alex touched on this to me the other night when we were talking about it. So, and, and also in his comments on this podcast, it's sort of like a balm. You know, there's a comforting familiarity to listening to uh, material that you're already familiar with in that sense. Uh, but of course, that isn't what Sleaford mods are. Um, there's nothing balming or comforting about the uh, the material on this album, as anyone who knows them knows. They're very confrontational. And the album cracked the top 10. It came in at number 10, which is, I think, to see them sat in there with their... Uh, with the likes of Elton John and Abba, it's quite amusing with the greatest hits collection. <laughs> in the, it led, in the led to the, um, the creation of number um, <laughs> Jason Williamson's number 10 carrot cake, which oh, uh, right. yeah, if, well, if you go on his Instagram, you can watch him making it. It's probably the most erotic making of a carrot cake I've ever seen. The promotion um, of this album in lockdown has involved Jason Williamson doing a lot of baking, that's for sure, <laughs> uh, and in a, in a very characteristic sense as well. Oh. On the topic, um, I've I've started watching the uh, show that I mentioned the other day, the first team. Uh, all the episodes are available on iPlayer now. Uh, Jason Williamson has a recurring cameo as the Kit Man. Uh, in <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he's he's been in both episodes I've seen for probably for a combined twenty seconds, but he makes his presence known. What's it available on? Sorry, uh, iPlayer. I'm 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 gonna watch that. I mean, last week I said it was interesting anyway, but it's Jason Williamson that's now sold it to me. Yeah, I mean he's not in it a lot. He's not. It doesn't, in it a lot. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um. Well, my my I don't really have a review, but um my uh, my thoughts on the first two episodes are that was pretty funny. I'm not sure if it's as great as the in between is, but it's similar. And you know, it I can think of many worse ways to to spend 25 minutes. Right. Yeah. Sounds about right. I was just going to finish off by saying I think it's very difficult to make an elite greatest hits album. Um, you have, I think, you have great ones that are kind of, in my experience, they're they're not necessarily album acts. So or some people will disagree with that, of course. So the greatest hits compilations, they're usually multi-disc deluxe compilations, are the only ones you really need to own. Uh, and it's sort of like every household should own a copy. So with those, I'm thinking about acts like ABBA and Queen. Um, and then you have acts where they're not really greatest hits because they're, they are, they're retrospective collections, but they compile all of the band's materials. So a bit like Complete Discography by Minor Threat, which is superb. Uh, and the new Hyperdub release of Burial Music 
uh, tunes 2011 to 2019 which basically covers the entire second half of Burial's discography up to now but uh, an example of one where it is just collecting some of the band's best work which I think is what is really hard to get right is the very best of the Stone Roses an album I talked about on the podcast last year I think and I'm, I'm willing to put all that glue into this bracket because it's different to that But what and what gives it its, its selling point is the fact that it traverses so much different material it has some essential Sleaford Mods tracks in it and it leaves others out so it's very random like that but as an overview of what they are uh, with a lot of goodies for long term fans it's brilliant so uh, yeah I've, it's been like I've been buying at least it feels like at least one Sleaford Mods release every year for the last five years since I got into them and that's great there's a lot of momentum there I can see them continuing on um, and it's it's mad to me that they've you know the last two albums including this one have now breached the top ten uh, but I love that excellent um, well I personally have to say uh, the best of the Beatles is my favourite <laughs> compilation Um <laughs> Of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. That about wraps us up, I think. Um, I think we've got a... Sorry to interrupt there, uh, Al. Oh, have we got a queef? From, have we got we've a got, queef? We've got, we've got a Keith queef. Oh, so. We should, so we should. So we should. So we'll, uh, we'll just play that. Hang on. Get it ready here. Right, we're ready. Go for it. On June 12th, Series 4 of F is for Family will be available on Netflix. So you've got time to watch the first three series if you haven't already. And you should. Because it's the best animated sitcom around. I have watched the first three. I enjoy it. I'm not sure I agree with the best around, but it is very good. And he's not wrong that it is worth watching. Wow, well, I've never heard of it. Um, I hadn't until I've received that message. So it's big, big praise. I've just finished. Um, well, I just finished all of the Rick and Morty on Netflix. Of course, the fourth season isn't on there. And my plan was to, um, my plan was to have a stab at BoJack Horseman now. But uh, I've never heard of this though. That's interesting. Bojack Horseman is superb, um, and it only gets better as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a strange one because the, if you look at the critical reception, the first season of it is pretty lukewarm, and then the rest are all brilliant. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Mm, there's quite a few shows I can think of where their first season—I mean, not just comedies, but quite a few yeah. shows. I would say Breaking Bad and The Americans both have. First seasons that are good, uh, but maybe Mid- not middling great. though. Like the phrase, phrase for this was more middling than good. That was what uh, surprised me. But yeah, yeah. M- m- maybe that's the only example. Because okay. obviously, in in America, that sort of review, those sort of reviews are can often be the death of a show, can't they? Early on, but mm. yeah. uh, although you, uh, the classic model for that is always. I know it was never reviewed poorly. Not even close. But the wire, of course, HBO sticking with that when they weren't sure exactly what its future was. Uh, it couldn't have paid bigger dividends, and I think that's that's the model that all networks should look at. Well, hopefully they do. Um, my God, would you look at the time? Um, does someone want to elaborate on that? <laughs> oh, um, oh, it's plug time. Um, at Stick Around Cast on the Twitters, you can follow us there to hear about all the stuff that we do. Um, you can go on facebook.com slash podcast. same thing, regurgitate it onto the Facebook feed, hopefully that's still working, I haven't checked um, stickaroundpodcast.com for everything you can get the episodes, you can get all our articles including my top fives, including stuff by Al, including stuff by Michael, and I hear a little uh, birdie tells me that there's something in the pipeline from Josh oh. um, 
which I'm excited about. So that'll be unleashed at some point. And mainly go on iTunes, give us five stars, because that's how people hear about us. Um, or one star, whatever. Not two, three or four, though. Boring. Yeah. Um, um, if you could give us a 0.6 out of 10 that would be preferable but I don't think it's yeah possible. that's alright that's okay yeah. So <laughs> even if it does take 11 years to get it up to a 8.6 yeah, we'll exactly. live with that because <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a pretty strong if you put that onto a graph that's going to look good oh yeah oh yeah improvement whereas if you start high then it's just going to be a flat plateau which is boring um, we have got what else have we got uh, we're on we're on Instagram, but there's nothing really posted on there. But you can follow us at Stick Around Podcast, uh, and I think that's about covers all that we've got. We're basically everywhere. Type "Stick Around" in, you'll find us somewhere. Yeah, this has been pretty well timed, guys. Uh, eight minutes left. Uh, just so listeners know, um, Big Phil, second shout out, um, is going round to Michael's house to do some DIY. Are you gonna? Can you get a shit shit in? Do you think, Michael? Can I what? Can you get a shit in before he comes? Don't need one, mate. I'd want before this. <laughs> timed it better. Talking of good timing, you timed it better as well. He's coming to do some outdoor DIY. I should mention. Uh, oh yeah. Give, how how are we feeling about indoor DIY? Because I feel like I'm just terrible at it. Well, I'm I'm dreadful at it for sure. Yeah, same. I need <laughs> yeah. to put. A, I should, I should clarify. Put it doesn't matter whether it's it. indoor or outdoor. I'm equally bad. Okay. Yep. Just what you were saying there made it sound as if. I'll bring him around for the outdoor stuff, but indoors I'm an absolute weed. Oh no, I was commenting purely on the lockdown situation. But... I see, okay. <laughs> Actually, that makes sense, yeah. Anyway, um, I think he's been Michael Johnson. Um, again, last time I checked, I think I was. Uh, he has 100% been Clive Fisher. Um, yeah, I have. Um, I've been Alex Wayne. Uh, please come back next week, um, where we'll be... As up to date as this week, 2016, 2013, 2001, and 1966, did you say, Clive? Correct, yeah. <laughs> wow, what a memory. Um, anyway, thank you very much, and remember to stick around. Stick around. Thank you all for listening Rest assured that you have found The best podcast in the universe It's Stick Around